Thanks so much, Wen, and thank you so much for having me. It's um, yeah, such a blessing and a pleasure to be to be with you all, and a real honour actually to uh, to follow and to speak alongside uh, Mr. Philip Ng. Philip's a, a dear friend of our ministry at RZIM and a, a great leader and general and servant in the kingdom. So it's a real honour to be to speaking with him and to be joining all of you. I'm sorry I can't be there with you, and we can't all be together uh, physically. Uh, but nonetheless, these are such important issues, and I'm so pleased uh, that we at RZIM. RZIM uh, are able to, uh, to be a part of this and to serve you. In one of the old Superman movies, so this is before Superman became kind of dark and they kind of merged him with Batman and you know they had to compete with Avengers and so they tried lots of random things. Uh, I'm more of a classical Superman guy. Christopher Reeve, 1970s, 1980s, uh, many of you probably won't even know about it, let alone remember it, uh, but there was a series of four movies made. Um, the original Superman movies. And in the fourth one, there is a moment at the end of the movie where Superman is taking Lex Luthor, whom he has defeated, of course, as he always does, and Superman is taking him to prison. And he drops him off, and there's always this nice little kind of conversational byplay that happens. They have a, a strange rapport, uh, Superman and, and Lex. And they're having a conversation, and Lex kind of says effectively at the end of the chat, um, so what happens now? Uh, what's next? Uh, and Superman smiles and he says, Lex, the world is as it always was, with good fighting evil. The world is as it always was, with good fighting evil. And when we look across the world now, uh, especially over these last six months, we see that the scourge of injustice has taken so many different shapes and forms, but what we actually see just beneath that is that a lot of this injustice, in fact most of it, is not new. Uh, injustice has been around since humankind has been around. Since, ever since there were people, uh, there has been injustice in one way or another. But recently we see that taking uh, far more viscerally upsetting and emotive forms. And so we've seen it uh, in the North Atlantic and in the United States uh, with the latest cultural surge in the awareness of racial injustice. Uh, we've seen it across various parts of the world as a result of the pandemic uh, in regards to economic injustice, financial injustice, uh, the injustice of the incorrect or unfair distribution of access to health care. Uh, there are countries that have been hit with this pandemic that have more cabinet ministers than they have respirators in their entire country. Uh, so we see health injustice. Um, we see it in relation to mental health and mental ill health. So the point is that injustice takes many, many forms, but it's probably no more prevalent in its manifestations uh, than it has been today for a very long time. So I'm not saying that injustice is worse than it's ever been. It's always terrible. It's always horrible in all its forms. But there is a climate at the moment of awareness of injustice, especially but not limited to younger people. So it makes sense at this particular time to talk about injustice, not because injustice is a new thing, uh, but because there is a new amount of cultural awareness um, around injustice. And even though it takes different forms in different parts of the world, uh, it's important uh, that those of us um, who feel these issues impacting our hearts and our lives and our screens and our news feeds, that that is actually taken as a signal to act and to learn and to think more deeply about these issues. And so I want to talk about, in that context, three aspects of justice. And Sorry, before I get to that, I want to first talk about this term social justice. And it's a very kind of sexy, political, street term that people are using. But really, let's be honest, you know, I've, I've practiced law for a number of years. I've worked in politics for a number of years. Social is just the adjectival form of the word society. So 
justice, social justice, is really about justice in society. So there's really very little need for the word social in front of it. It kind of sounds nicer maybe. Um, it might sell more movies or sell more t-shirts or get more people to your protest. Uh, but social justice is really justice. It's about justice in society, justice relating to people, justice in the real world. And in that context, I want to talk about three aspects of justice that we, and when I say we, I do mean all of us on some level, seem to have forgotten or perhaps we're just not thinking deeply enough about. For justice to make sense and for us to think about these issues meaningfully and to actually act on them and bring about justice and fight injustice, we need firstly a reason for justice. We also need a standard of justice and we also need a means to justice. A reason for justice, a standard of justice and a means to justice. Justice thought about separate from these three things is just kind of abstract and actually won't really do much more than getting people just whipped up in their emotions, um, in their emotions of victimhood complexes and persecution complexes um, and oppressor and suppressor complexes, which is what we actually see a lot of out there today. So firstly, a reason for justice. Why should we bother with justice in the first place? And this is an interesting question because it's something that we don't really think about. Everyone's out there speaking out against injustice or at least what we perceive to be injustice. But who's actually asking the question, why bother with justice in the first place? Now, we live not primarily, but at least in some way relevantly in a post-truth culture. It doesn't mean everyone's thinking in a post-truth way, but this concept of post-truth is more prevalent today than it has been for a long time. It's not that it's never been like this before. Uh, this post-truth thinking was around in ancient Greece. Uh, it was around during the sexual and cultural revolutions of the 50s and 60s. Uh, but it's back and it's in kind of a new post-truth form. And the post-truth form is really about thinking with our feelings. So your feelings are the most important thing. And if you feel persecuted or you feel hard done by, then that by definition of itself is in some sense some example of injustice. You've had injustice done to you. And so when feelings are placed before justice, before truth, uh, before um, other people even, we have a problem. Because to the question, why bother with justice? Is there a reason for justice? It's very difficult if we subjectify or relativize that ideal of justice in itself. Because unless we have an objective reason for justice, then it's very difficult to have meaningful conversations about it. It's very difficult to identify injustice, to even define what injustice is, let alone to agree on methods and means and systems through which we can actually address and tackle injustice. One of the most popular shows on Netflix last year uh, was a show called What If? And it was pretty depressing, actually, and kind of a cynical view of humankind. So I'm not, please don't take this as a, as a recommendation and then uh, write me irritated emails that you won't get your, uh, you know, eight lots of 40 minutes back. So I'm not recommending it. But it's a fascinating show because it included this character by the name of Anne Montgomery, played by Renee Zellweger, and she played the character beautifully. And this character was not so much immoral, but she was just amoral. So morality wasn't even a consideration for her. She had no reason for justice. She had no reason for ethics. She had no reason for morality. And there's a fascinating line uh, that Anne Montgomery states about halfway through this series. And she says, you know what annoys me the most is having to deal with the moral ideals of lesser individuals. You know what annoys me the most? Having to deal with the moral ideals of lesser individuals. Now, 
It's the final phrase that really hits home because she's basically saying that there are people who are greater individuals and lesser individuals. And so we begin to see then that the reason for justice has to in some way equalise all people. There has to be something that is true of all people that renders them worthy of justice in the first place. Because otherwise we are in a place where we have no logical basis on which to say that justice requires that people be treated well or fairly or even equally or reasonably for that matter. Unless there is something about people that gives them some sense of value, worth, dignity, regardless of who they are, what they believe in, what their gender is, what their sexuality is, what religion they might identify with or may not, unless there is something like that, the concept of justice kind of breaks down at the starting line. We need some kind of a reason for justice in the first place. Otherwise, it's just your opinion versus my opinion. And in the words of you know, my late mentor and boss, Ravi Zacharias, he said so powerfully, if everything's relative and there's no objective reference point, how do we know what's right and wrong? Some people love their neighbours, some people eat their neighbours. What's the difference? And who's to say what's right and wrong? So this need for an objective frame of reference, an ontic referent against which we can determine whether people have been treating un treated unjustly, that re reference point needs to begin with some aspect of the individual, of every single one of our, of me, you, and the 7.2 billion people that we live alongside on this world right now. There has to be something equally true about us that makes us or renders us of equal value. And when we look at the Christian message, we begin to see this emerging in an incredibly powerful and transformative way. And it's an age-old Christian doctrine, one of the most basic doctrines that underpins the entire Christian message and Christian worldview. And it's referred to in the Latin as imago Dei, the image of God. The fact that all people that have ever lived, that are living now and that will ever live, live are created in God's image. We are God's image bearers. And so with that, there is an imputation of intrinsic value, intrinsic worth, and intrinsic dignity. And that provides us with an unmistakable and logical reason for justice. If everyone's created in God's image, everyone is bearing God's image, then we are all worthy of being treated equally. We're all worthy of being treated justly and straight away you have a reason for justice. Now there are other worldviews out there uh, and they may have their own accounts, but this Christian account for justice is by far and away the most compelling, the most coherent and the most transformative that humankind has ever seen. And that's why we have actually built societies, systems of economics, of politics, of anthropology on this very basic but powerful Judeo-Christian idea of the fact that all people are created in the image of God. It provides us with a reason for justice. Now, a reason for justice is not enough. We also need a standard of justice because it's all well and good to say all people are treated equally, but then you could build all kinds of standards around that that treat people badly or horribly or even discriminate against people for reasons that you might try and justify. And there are all kinds of societies that have done this over the years. And you look at people like you know, Hitler and Mao and Pol Pot and Stalin and Lenin as just examples at one end, but it's also done much more subtly. It's done by you and me in our minds and in our hearts, how we, we build different systems of justice and different systems of morality that we apply to different people. There's a Harvard professor by the name of Michael Sandel. He, he wrote a great little book that's just called Justice. Um, and it's a great introduction uh, to the concept and to the topic 
and he talks about the different ways that humankind has set up different standards of justice kind of over the last 10,000 years. Um, and he talks about uh, justice based on the idea of equality, um, justice based on freedom. Uh, thinkers like John Stuart Mill and John Locke and others say that, well, just societies are really societies where everyone is as free as possible to do as much as they possibly can without impinging on the freedom of other people. Um, then there are uh, the, the more socialistic and communistic and Marxist thinkers who they frame justice around equality, um, specifically those three examples around equality of outcomes. Um, then there are the meritocrats and the classical liberals uh, who frame justice around equality of opportunity. So it doesn't really matter how things shake out, but what's just, a just society gives everyone a fair go at the front end. Health, education, employment outcomes are equal at the front end. So there are lots of different ways, lots of different standards that we have come up with. The utilitarians, uh, you know, Jeremy Bentham and his friends, justice is about the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, the people more recently who have developed the Human Development Index, justice is about happiness and about well-being and about health, where everyone is as happy as possible. That's how you measure a just society. So there are all of these theories. There hasn't been any shortage of people coming up with ideas on how to build just societies, on how to define particular standards of justice. The problem we have once again, though, is if everyone is defining their own standards of justice, which one do we go with? Which one do we agree on? Even Hitler had standards of justice. It just didn't work out too well uh, for large, large groups of people based on race and ethnicity. So it's not so much that having a reason for justice is enough. A standard of justice that is coherent and that renders equal fair treatment for all people, in some way at least, just treatment for want of a, a better term, has to follow from that and has to flow from that. Otherwise, what we're all really doing is just arguing about whose standard of justice works. And when, if, you, if you look carefully, and sadly you don't have to look too carefully, uh, at your Twitter feed, uh, your Instagram account, and basically any political discourse that's happening online, or, dare I say it, uh, in the corporate media as well. You know, watch CNN, watch Fox News, watch MSNBC, watch the BBC. And what we see is a battle for the definition of what justice actually is. No one out there thinks that justice is a bad idea. Everyone's out there trying to fight injustice. It's just that everyone out there's got different definitions of what injustice is and what justice is. So it's almost impossible because we are all in some way, shape or form, as St. Augustine said, turned in on ourselves, even in rendering a definition of justice, which is meant to be outward looking in the first place. And so in mentioning that, I want to draw on a Bible verse. And this is a Bible verse. There are about 2,500 Bible verses um, on the issue of justice and helping the oppressed. And this is one that is often forgotten. And it's Amos 5.7. And in Amos 5.7, the prophet Amos writes, he says, you who have turned justice into bitterness, in the first part of that verse, you who have turned justice into bitterness. What's he trying to say? And I owe this insight uh, to uh, my friend and boss at the moment, Michael Ramsden. Uh, it's a great insight. What he's saying is that if you seek justice for the wrong reasons, if you seek justice based purely on your own invented standards of justice, either yourself personally or your tribe or your political party or what you were told to believe it in your family, in your church, in your movement, if you just seek justice based on you or your tribe or any kind of inward-looking posture, it's going to end in bitterness. It's going to end in bitterness because you're seeking justice, the right thing, with the wrong standard and for the wrong reasons. So justice that starts with an inward-facing heart posture is always going to end in bitterness. And all you're going to find are people yelling at each other, screaming for justice, but 
with nothing but bitterness in their minds and in their hearts. And that's exactly what we see out there. We see people out there struggling to find a standard for justice and all it's left to do is to try and build their own standard and then standard and then further that in the public debate. And then as soon as that happens and other people try and knock it down, people get defensive, people get upset, people get offended, people get hurt. So this verse from Amos is so powerful. You have turned justice into bitterness. You've turned something that's meant to focus on the intrinsic value of all people and you're using it for your own personal goals, whether they are political or economic or social or just your own self-interest directly. And that's why, in the same way that we needed an objective reference point to find a reason for justice that's given by the Judeo-Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei, we also need a standard of justice that is above and beyond just me getting what I think I deserve or me getting the wrong done to me rectified through some kind of retribution or compensation. It's got to go above and beyond that. It's got to be something that we can blanket across all 7.2 billion of us to make that work. Otherwise, two things will happen. We will have to reduce justice in its definition to something really pathetic, something that we can actually achieve. And that's what we try to, that's what sadly happens a lot, where justice now has been reduced to harmony um, or to tolerance where it's basically like, look, let's just try not to fight. Let's just try not to kill each other. Let's just try to live our lives. Uh, and there are political philosophers who have made the way for this. People like John Rawls, those of you who have studied him will know that that's really what it's about. Just do whatever you want to do. Just don't mess with other people. Just stay out of their way, which is a sadly small view of justice. It's a sadly small view of social harmony. Um, and the second thing that will happen uh, is that we'll never agree on, an, on a standard of justice and what justice actually means. And so once again, we look to the Christian message and once again, the Christian message responds because from the words of Jesus Christ himself, he says, here's your standard of justice. Love others as you love yourself. But between that and in elaborating on that, if you read carefully and he says this again and again, and then he does it himself, you've got to love your enemies. That love. So the standard for justice is love, but not the love that we think we can do in our own strength a far greater and qualitatively different brand of love. This is a type of love that actually seeks out the best for others, even at our own cost, even at our own cost. And that's unique. That golden rule, love your neighbours as you would love yourself, even if your neighbours are your enemies. This is coming from Jesus Christ, who literally was loving the people who were killing him while they were killing him, right? That's the standard of justice. That's the standard of love. So this standard is a supernatural non-human standard and it's standard that we fail again and again and again because the more we look inwards on ourselves on our own groups at our own algorithms that put up on our facebook walls all the people that agree with us on everything and we watch the tv shows that agree with us and we read the books of authors that agree with us then more and more we are turning in and in and inwards on ourselves and we are turning in the words of scripture we are turning justice into bitterness so we need help. We can't do this in our own strength. That's one thing that's clear. Jesus sets down the standard for justice, but he also causes a huge problem for us because he confirms for us to our faces that we have no hope in doing this, in meeting this standard in our own strength. And so thirdly and finally, we need to think about a means to justice. How can we actually get this done? And that's where the second half of that verse in Amos is so important. The first half is you, as I've said, the first half is you have turned justice into bitterness and you have thrown down righteousness to the ground. 
You've turned justice into bitterness and you've thrown down righteousness to the ground. Now, righteousness is a very confusing and potentially ugly word to try and understand. Um, and we Christians don't spend enough time thinking about what this word means. But at its simplest, it means being right with God, right? Righteousness means right with Godness, right? It just means being in right relationship with God. And so what's the prophet telling us? He's saying, the reason that you have messed up in your understanding of justice, the reason that you're struggling out there to identify injustice, to fight for justice, to tackle injustices, is because you have forgotten that justice needs to be preceded by being in right relationship with God. Being in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ precedes our understanding of justice and our capacity to meet the standard that Jesus sets for us, to live out the truth of the reality that we are all made in God's image, no matter what we believe. But that right relationship with God has got to come first. It's got to precede it. The reason that you are turning justice into bitterness is because you have thrown down the reality and the truth of your need for rescue through the person of Jesus Christ. That's where you've messed up. So Jesus is the final piece to the puzzle. He's the means to justice. And Christianity offers uniquely this supernatural means to justice. He gives us access to that supernatural love that flows out of us through him, right? So this love that we need to meet the standard of this golden rule that is only found in the Christian faith, we know we can't do it in our own strength. So what does God do? He says, come to me. I'm going to cover you with my righteousness. Then I'm going to pump out my love, supernatural love, through you. You're like a pressure valve. You just pump it out. I'll give it to you and you pour it out. This qualitatively different brand of love that we are just simply not capable of in our own strength. But we can do if we come into that right relationship with Jesus. I'll just close with this story of a meeting between Billy Graham and President Dwight Eisenhower. Billy Graham was going through his crusades and he was drawing enormous crowds. This is relatively early um, in his speaking. And he smiles, he meets the president, the president smiles, sees him off. And on the way out, the president says, Billy, I hope your crusades go well this week. Because wouldn't it be great if we all just learned to love each other again? How much could that be said of our society today? Wouldn't it be great if we all just learned to love each other again? And Billy Graham smiled. He looked back at the president and he said, yes, Mr. President, it would. But we can only love in the purest sense once our hearts are first touched by the love of Jesus Christ. We can only love in the purest sense if our hearts are first touched by the love of Jesus Christ. He's talking about that supernatural love, that crazy love that puts other people first, that recognizes that even the people that hate us even our enemies are made in the image of God and are worthy of the justice that we want to seek to make. And that's why scripture says this justice can't just be eked out over tables. It can't be furthered just through particular sectors like politics and economics and anthropology and churches and counseling centers and philosophy. It's got to roll down like waters and it's got to run, righteousness has got to accompany it like mighty streams. That's how this justice has to come. So it has to come from a supernatural source. And that supernatural source is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the center point. He is the measuring stick. So the reason for justice, we are made in the image of God imperfectly. Jesus is made in the image of God perfectly. The standard for justice, we try and do things for ourselves and for other people imperfectly. Jesus gives us the standard perfectly, the golden rule, and then lives it out. And the means to justice, we try and actualize justice in our own strength imperfectly through the power of Jesus, walking with him in right relationship, access, and access to and propelled by his Holy Spirit, we can actually live out justice, the perfect justice that God wants, where everyone that he made is treated with the intrinsic worth and value and respect uh, as image bearers of Christ. So Superman was right 
The world is as it always was, with good fighting evil. But he was only half right, because we think, and today the prevailing cultural attitude out there, is that evil is out there and good is in here. There are good people and there are evil people. We've got to get out there and fight. But the reality is, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Nobel laureate, wrote, that the line that divides good and evil cuts through the heart of every person. It cuts through the heart of every man and woman. So we need saving from ourselves first. We need that righteousness or right with godness first. Once we have that, then our eyes and our hearts open up to the reality that everyone is made in God's image. Even our enemies, even the people that hate us the most and are literally trying to take us down, to hurt us, to betray us, even to kill us. And we can even pour out our efforts at tackling injustice on them as well, in and through and with the person of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to taking your questions. Thanks, Max. Um, there is just so much in there. <laughs> there I was a lot. It. No, 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 I love it. And you delivered it like 10 minutes, I think, nearly on the dot. Um, we've got really great questions in here. And before I go on, actually, um, I forgot to mention that Max is a Perth boy. So I am. At this point in time, yeah, I think both of us are like, man, I wish I was back in Perth. It will be nice to be at a Perth beach. Yes. But anyway, I just thought, just like sharing that connection. It's kind of cool. Um, in Singapore, actually, there's a lot of um, Australians and Perth people living here. So. Yes, yeah, there are. The Perth-Singapore connection is strong. Yeah. It's, it's good. <laughs> so on to the questions. Um, so I think you touched on this, um, but I'll just read it out anyway um, from Josh. How do we approach those who desire tolerance yet impose intolerance on Christian values that oppose theirs? It's a very good question and a, and a difficult one, uh, mm. but so relevant. Um, so I totally appreciate the question. The, it needs to start, I think, and probably most of my answers, if they're on practical questions like this, will yep. start with these two uh, kind of precursors, if you like. Um, the first thing is we've got to pray, um, particularly if you're, going in, you're talking about a particular person. Uh, if the, the questioner is, has in mind or on their heart an individual in their family, a friend, a colleague um, that they're thinking about, I would just be praying for that person constantly and praying for the interactions too. So actually ask, you know, for God to actually be in those moments with you. He's there, but ask for the prompting, you know, of the Holy Spirit. I definitely advise that. So I think prayer is important. Um, the second thing is relationship. Um, I know I haven't gotten to the question yet, but yeah, these, no, two things, these two things are really important. Uh, so prayer number one. Secondly, just invest in those friendships. Um, one of the things that we are called to as followers of Jesus is to, you know, love our neighbour as as we love ourselves for their own sake, like as an end in itself. Um, mm. It's easy to come to these sorts of conferences or listen to evangelists and apologists and, and we think about prayer and relationship as a means to leading them to Jesus or as a means to getting them to agree with us. Whereas the first objective is not to get them to agree. It's, it's not even leading them to Jesus. It's just to love them as an end in itself. So this is the beauty and the elegance of the Imago Dei. It actually calls us to love people just for the sake of loving them. And that's a beautiful thing. You don't get that in any other worldview. Mm. And it also helps if we're thinking of it like that because if you're engaging with people, particularly people who don't agree with you or non-believers, um, just for the purpose of getting them to believe in what we believe or getting them to agree with you, uh, they will sniff that out. Yeah. People know when they're made to feel like a project. Right? Yeah. You, you know it every time someone's trying to sell you, sell you Tupperware. Or, or insurance. Or insurance. <laughs> or if you're, you know, no, no disrespect to the used car salesman out there. Um, but we, we know when someone's trying to use us as a yeah. project, right, or sell us something. Mm. So I think just get used to engaging with people for the sake of building authentic relationships, authentic yeah. friendships of trust, authentic you know, friendships of affection, um, even with people you disagree with. Um, so that's, I think, 
those two things could, in my view, uh, be an exhaustive response. Um, but I will actually add something on the actual mm. logic of it, uh, because partly because I'm, I'm from AZIM, uh, but also <laughs> hopefully this will actually answer the, qu the specifics of the sure. question. Um, is that it is worth, I think, just getting our heads around some of these simple principles of, of logic and reasoning. Um, and to the extent that you're comfortable then sharing some of that, um, which of course won't work unless you're praying for them and you have an authentic friendship of trust. But actually kind of making the point that, look, even this whole hyper-tolerance culture is quite intolerant of those that disagree with the ideals of morality that it has decided on. So this is an interesting aspect of uh, capital L classical liberalism where we've been all about freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and even freedom of morality to some extent. But there are kind of two aspects of liberalism that don't go together that we have tried over the last probably 400 years to try and squish together. One aspect of it is this post-enlightenment idea that we can just use reason and science and just the intrinsic yearnings of human hearts to decide on what's right and wrong and then just all go forward with that. And the more we're thinking, the more we're innovating, the more we're engineering, the more we're philosophizing, we'll get closer and closer to this absolute moral truth. So this post-enlightenment liberalism actually thinks that there is an absolute moral truth. And that's why, you know, if someone disagrees with that moral truth or what we've come to for the moment, uh, they're treated so badly. Mm -hmm. And that's why words like bigot are just thrown around, like constantly. Yeah. So that's one aspect of liberalism. Like, we're all on a march to mor moral truth. And if mm -hmm. anyone gets in the way, they're a bigot, or they've got to get out of the way. Funny thing is, the other kind of liberalism, which, which is the John Rawls liberalism, is basically the post-truth side, which is... Well, it's, when it's taken out of context, it becomes the post-truth post side, which is everyone should just be able to believe whatever they want, even their moral truths and their moral systems. They can just have whatever opinions they want. So long as it doesn't affect other people, you can believe what you want. Now, that doesn't fit with the Enlightenment idea that we're all moving together as mm. one team yeah. towards morality. John Rawls is like, no, 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 actually, we're, we're moving in 7.2 million direct, 7.2 billion directions. Mm. Just stay out of each other's way. Uh, so they don't compute. And if you ask a classical liberal which one they believe in, uh, and I am a classical liberal, um, they should get quite confused because we don't really know. We're tr kind of trying to run both of these things at the same time, mm. which is, it's, it's logically incoherent, but it's just tricky in a, in a conversation. It's like trying to have an Amazon Prime account and a Netflix account when you have a free night and you just don't know what to do. <laughs> right? You can't watch yeah. them both at the same time. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and so most liberals in most sorts of conversations kind of flip between one and the other. Mm. Um, so I think getting a decent grounding of these principles of logic, the fact that we are all exclusivists, like all truth claims are exclusive yeah. um, because they exclude that that disagrees with, you know, with mm. them. And so, I mean, C.S. Lewis put it well, as he so irritatingly often does. Um, he says, dogma is a bad word and no one wants to be known as dogmatic. But basically, if you believe or think anything, you're dogmatic because you're dogmatic about that. Even if you think there's no such thing as truth, that's a dogmatic claim because you're excluding people that think there is such thing as truth, yep. right? And so he said, everyone's a, dog, a dogmatist. The only question is, are you consciously dogmatic or unconsciously dogmatic? Mm. And the irony is that the most dogmatic people are the unconscious dogmatists, yep. mm. uh, right? So what's more important, maybe this is a way to steer the conversation for the mm. questioner, is not so much whether I offend you with what I believe or whether you feel like it's dogma, because we're all dogma dogmatists. So let's just leave that at the side. Mm. What's more important is what's actually true. Is it true? That's yeah. the bigger question. Not how does this message of Jesus make you feel or, you know, 
do you like Christians or do you like the church or do you like how the George Pell case was handled or do you like public opinion or do you like how this Christian pressure group or movement has, has handled itself through this debate or that debate? None of that's really relevant. If we're thinking about truth, um, we should just be asking, is it true? Mm. Uh, I've always said that the best reason to be a Christian is because it's true. Um, there's lots of other reasons that flow from that, but if not for that, all the other reasons are irrelevant. Yeah. Um, so I think getting some sense of comfort with dealing with those principles of kind of logic and reasoning, which are not complex. Um, you can do them uh, very easily. There's lots of books written by colleagues of mine and members of our team uh, that I'm sure would be helpful uh, in that space. So I encourage you to do that, but yeah, prayer and friendship and then daylight and then maybe a bit of equipping uh, yeah. and some of this reasoning stuff. And so on that, I think a lot of the times, to be honest, what I've seen and what I've heard, it's the opposite of that. Mm. So they come in with the truth and you know the word and kind of like I see it this way this is my Christian value without the relationship right without the friendship and kind of just like you're wrong yeah and I'm going to pray for you through it yeah this is a yeah it's, it's a big it's a big us at I am cliche that I'm sure you've heard from us and our team if you're watching this many times but um, you know but behind the question there's always a questioner and behind the argument there's always an arguer uh, and as followers of Jesus, we are called expressly to focus on the person and on their heart and on what we have to do to do two things, to strengthen our friendship with them and to help them to see the person of Jesus. And that's all, you know, that really the call in terms of evangelism as a calling, that's all we're really called to do. We're just called to lovingly shift the obstacles out of the way so they can get a clear look at the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, it's not about winning arguments. Um, and I, I certainly haven't met anyone who's agreed with me because I've beaten them in an argument or who has given their life to Jesus because I've beaten them in an argument. Mm. Um, we can't reason or argue people into the kingdom of God. Um, we can love them into the kingdom, but at the same time, we need to reason them out of irrational disbelief. And so that, I think, is what constructive engagement is uh, in these sorts of dialogues and in the, in the public square more generally too. We just have to reason people out of irrational disbelief. And when you've done enough of that, all that's left is the person of Jesus. Mm. Um, and so that, it's kind of like a, a logical endpoint without us having to stress so much that, you know, if I lose this argument or if I don't have the last word in this dinner party, then, you know, the gospel loses or we lose as a team. Yeah. You know? I think being humble about it is quite important. Like, and I, we can say this to one another, I'll say it right down the barrel <laughs> that, you know, the, the advancing of the kingdom of God doesn't depend on you and doesn't depend on me. God doesn't need us. He doesn't even need us for evangelism. He doesn't even need us for sharing about this stuff in the public square. But we are called to as a gift from Him. And so I think that's an important mindset to have because that will help our, our heart posture that we're invited to participate in these discourses as a gift. We're mm -hmm. participating in God's vision. He knows what He's doing. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately it's not up to us. So we can stress less. We're not guardians of the truth. I know a lot of churches out there and Christian leaders think, well, we have to guard the truth. As if, if you didn't guard it, it something would happen to it. Right? Mm. Whereas it's a misunderstanding of truth. Truth exists whether we agree or not. If everyone in the world was not Christian tomorrow, it would still be true. Yep. It would still be true, mm -hmm. right? Um, at the same time, if we all agreed tomorrow, all 7.2 billion of us, that 2 plus 2 equaled 5, it would still be untrue. Yeah. So we shouldn't really stress about opinion polls or what people think at dinner parties or whatever. We just need to love people, speak truth in grace. You know, as Philip was saying, love and truth mm. um, together uh, are powerful things. And that will make us countercultural. 
Um, and conceptually, it will make us offensive to people. Yeah. But relationally, it doesn't need to. Yeah. Um, it is possible to be conceptually offensive and relationally loving at the yeah. same time. Um, and, and Jesus is the best example of that. Yeah. Um, so read those four Gospels again and again and again. Uh, read you know, the book of Acts. Read the great speeches in Acts by Peter and Paul especially, Acts 17, um, Acts 1. Uh, these speeches are great examples of that. Grace with truth, with credibility intellectually, but also with the right heart posture and just showing people uh, what we believe and why we believe it. Yeah. Um, and on that, um, there's a practical question here. Mm. How do we interact with someone pursuing social justice in a bitter manner? Yeah, that, that's a really strategic question because if they are pursuing social justice, then we have common ground. So that's important. And one of the challenges we have as Christians is because we disagree, with, we don't agree with everything someone believes, or the reasons why they believe it, we feel like we can't agree with anything, right? So I don't, I don't want to get into a Black Lives Matter discussion because that's another talk. Yeah. Um, but there is a law of the undistributed middle. It's a very simple principle of logic, which it's very basic, like a four-year-old could understand it. It basically says, just because you agree with someone on something doesn't mean you have to agree with that person on everything, mm -hmm. right? I'm pretty sure Hitler agreed that two plus two equaled four. Um, I'm not going to stop believing in that just because I found him morally reprehensible yeah. or he believed in other stuff ethically that I disagreed with. So let's keep our eyes focused on truth. And when there are people who are non-Christian, um, even people who dislike Christians, who believe in aspects of the same principles and ideals of truth and justice that we do, what better time to get alongside them, to find common ground and to build common ground and to explain why we believe this. And they might believe it for another reason. That's where the three points I made can start to stand out, I think, mm. uh, as quite unique and powerful. Because you can actually say, hey, here's what I'm about. And here's the reason for justice, here's the standard for justice, and here's the means to justice as I have it. I know you have a different reason, a different standard and different means, yeah. but we want the same justice, so let's walk alongside each other and do what we can. Mm. Um, and I think we can, once again, we can be confident in, in our own skin and confident in our own faith uh, that just because we are associating with someone or even supporting someone doesn't mean we're agreeing with everything. So we have to be nuanced, we have to be sophisticated yeah. about things, and. I think just on that issue, because I did raise it, I did drop the bomb, I should explain. I think there is a difference between Black Lives Matter with capital letters in the, as the first letter of each of those words and the phrase Black Lives Matter, which is an entirely theologically true phrase because of the Imago Dei. Um, and so we can, I think, tread carefully and just be sophisticated without demonizing and stigmatizing people just because we don't agree with everything that they're on about. Mm. Uh, I've met very few people that agree with everything that I'm on about. Uh, so it's okay to disagree. Yeah. Um, we just need to be confident enough to be able to still to still engage. Yeah. Um, even if it's for different reasons. And then I'll, over time, that's a great opportunity to build friendship, friendship, mm. share our own journey with Christ, and you know, God will do the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know today we have a lot of young people, especially who are very, very um, passionate about social justice. Right. Um, so this one comes from anonymous. So hello, Anonymous. Um, as a teenager, how can I practically engage in social justice as a young person? Great. Well, Anonymous, thank you for joining us. Anonymous has been turning up to a lot of my talks recently, <laughs> actually. And it's very, um, yeah, very he, passionate about all your talks. He or she is everywhere. Yeah. He or she is everywhere. Um, no, thank you for the question. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I just want to start, and I think I've, I might have mentioned this in the last talk I did that you, that you might have referred to that you were at. Um, the ancient Greeks had three ways of talking about political engagement and social engagement. 
Um, one way was the idiot, and the idiot is the person that doesn't really think about anything beyond their own interests. Mm -hmm. So anonymous, you're already outside of that group. You, yeah. You're clearly not an idiot. Um, the second are the tribes people, and the tribes people are where we are at the most risk, I think, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Um, tribes people, when they're engaging in this kind of discourse on what can I do, they're only thinking about their tribe their religion, people that agree with them, their family, their friendship group. Uh, and that's not particularly helpful either. It's actually not much better than the idiot. And the third group is the citizen. And the citizen is thinking primarily about the greater good of other people, perhaps even at the cost of themselves. So it's fascinating that the ancient Greeks were onto this because this is like glimpses of Jesus's golden rule coming a few thousand years before he actually turned up and said it. But there was already an understanding that we need to look outwards at other people. So first of all, Congratulations on not being an idiot and congratulations on not being a tribes person. I just really want to encourage you to be a participating, engaged citizen. What can you do? Read. Read well and think about what you're reading and don't just read people whom you agree with. Um, read people you disagree with too. Um, read a wide variety of news stations and newspapers, um, which is actually all there, sadly, almost all there are now are news uh, outlets from one side or the other. Uh, there, used, there used to be a few in the middle and they're uh, increasingly scarce. Um, so yeah, I really encourage you to, to kind of read everything. If you're, if you're watching from Perth, you know, read the West Australian uh, and then read the Financial Review and then read the Sydney Morning Herald and then uh, read the Australian as well and then read the Economist and read the Atlantic and just go online and like scale through different articles written by different people. Think about what you're reading. And then in terms of engagement, um, speak, speak out. Uh, and that might be just to your friends. It might be at a dinner party. Um, but, you know, write letters, you know, write an article, see if you can get it published. Um, you know, think about um, how you can publicly engage if there are specific issues that are local in your area, um, if there's a cause that is fighting injustice. And there are so many great uh, both faith-based and non-faith-based causes that are fantastic in this space for you to get involved with. Um, whether it's you know Tear Fund or International Justice Mission um, or Compassion uh, or the Salvation Army or World Vision, you name it. And none of these guys are perfect. Um, they will do uh, the best that they can with the vision that they have. Um, but I just really encourage you to give of your time, give of your mind, give of your money uh, to the extent that you are able to do so. Uh, and God will continue to put issues on your heart and people on your heart to help. Um, because fighting injustice is really about reaching out and helping the people whom society has left behind. And in every society there are those people. So it could actually just be helping out a friend um, that needs some extra cash you know, to buy a present for their parents because they can't afford to. That's actually helping someone you know, who in some way, shape or form has been left behind. All the way to sponsoring a child or going on a mission somewhere overseas or giving um, to an organisation that you trust who's fighting on the front lines or running for parliament or joining a political party uh, or engaging in a public discourse either by writing a letter to the editor. Um, I don't want to just throw lots and lots out there, but um, there's no start or finish to how you can positively engage. And as a teenager, is the perfect time to start uh, because it's sad, but you can almost tell um, when you're a teenager, well, I certainly could, um, whether you're going to be an idiot or not um, in terms of political engagement and public engagement. Uh, it's part of being a responsible biblical citizen to know what's going on in the world. Uh, that's actually not optional. Um, yes, there are people like me who are strange, who are interested in politics, political junkies, you know. Um, but, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with just reading a newspaper once a week, uh, just knowing what's going on. It, if nothing else, it's a guidance in how we should be praying, how we should be thinking, and how we can be engaging with, with people around us. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's a good question, though.
Thank you. Um, we have one from Fred. Great. How do we remain biblical in society when even church and Christians push political correctness over biblical truth? Yeah, I think... Are they mutually exclusive? Yes, I'm glad, glad you said that. So yeah. I, I don't think political correctness is an absolute term. And so when people say, when people use political correctness in a pejorative way, um, as respectfully Fred has done, which is totally fair, what we're usually saying is, people are, political correct, are politically correct, don't allow me to share my view because they think it's politically incorrect, mm. right? So because of that, if we're living in a post-truth world where everyone's got their own system of morality and standards and justice around them, then everyone's going to have slightly different definitions of what's politically correct. And so we should start off by saying, we should start off with a posture of love and a posture of humility um, and just say what we want to say in grace and in truth, not seeking to be offensive, but also not compromising the truth. And so I think when you are in a conversation or when you're writing an article or when you're on TV being interviewed or whatever situation Fred finds himself in or anyone finds himself in, I think the most important thing is that you are as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And so what does that actually look like? I think it means being truthful um, and using the freedom that we have to actually speak our minds, but also being sensitive to other people's mm. emotions and feelings. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, you know, we Christians, we don't really think about the feelings of other people because we feel like we have been straitjacketed societally by not being able to share because of this cancel culture, because of political correctness, because of all of that. Uh, and so... Uh, we should be speaking out, so we should never compromise on truth. But I think we always need to keep in mind that when we are discoursing with someone, the truth is equally as important as our relationship with that person. Mm. Um, it's a big, the gospel is a big deal. The message of Jesus is a really heavy load. Uh, a friend of mine, when I was studying at Oxford, said to me, um, it's a three-ton gospel, man. And so if you're building two-ton bridges with your friends and your colleagues and others, you can't carry a three-ton load over a two-ton bridge. It's not strong enough. Mm. So our relationships with people, our friendships with people form the bridge across which we have to, in time, carry this gospel. And that could take 25 years. Yep. So it's worth taking some time to build the bridge. But I also encourage um, Fred and anyone else, um, and just really want to encourage you, uh, not to be phased by uh, political correctness to the extent that it makes you feel uh, constricted or constrained. You just focus on building authentic relationships of trust on prayer and on telling the truth to people strategically and thoughtfully uh, and God will work out the rest. Um, and I think you did mention churches, Fred, in your, in your question and I think church leaders have to do that too. We do have to lead from the front uh, and a church has, in my view, four mandates politically. One is to nurture and foster its members and its non-members, so the people outside of it, in going deeper in their relationship with Jesus or moving closer into the possibility of that relationship with Jesus. So that's the first thing. It should also be nurturing and fostering an environment and a love ethic whereby people are growing in relationship with one another. It should also be a prophetic voice to the society in which it finds itself, which is speaking out, which I think gets to what you were asking, Fred. But as well as being a prophetic voice, it should also be a provisional hand. It should also be actually reaching out and giving and seeing what the needs are of the community in which it's placed. It's not until the church is doing all four of those things that it's fully living out its mandate, uh, you know, that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians and in Romans uh, and so forth, where the church has to place itself in the political, economic, social and cultural centre of the community in which it is uh, in order to be relevant and in order to be able to build the bridges 
across which that gospel and the love of Jesus can then travel. Thank you. Now, I'm going to do a bit of a role play because let's get um, sure. practical. Okay. okay, so the question from Josh mm. is, how does one disagree with gentleness and respect? So I'm going to say something. Wow, okay. And then we'll put it. So instead of talking about this theoretically, okay. I think let's do this. We're going to role play it? Yeah. All right. And it's a live example. So okay. um, for those who are tuning in, you know, we're in Singapore. And um, one of the big issues here has been the migrant construction workers and yes. the spread of COVID. Right. Um, so a bunch of my friends and I have been volunteering. Okay. Anyway, so my friend gets into the taxi and she's on the way to this location, which you would never go. Um, and right. but there's construction workers there. Right. So the taxi driver says, oh, where are you going today? And then my friend says, so I'm going to be my friend. Oh, I'm going to help out and volunteer with the um, construction workers. Right. And the taxi driver goes like this. Um, oh, yeah, you know, they all just don't want to work. They just want to give COVID to each other so they don't have to work. Well, okay. 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 So then, I mean, that's a simple one, but obviously it's not truth. Of course, um, of course it's and not. And so how then do you disagree with gentleness and respect? And I'll tell you what happened to my friend, um, her response. Okay. And it's a good laugh. But anyway, how would you respond okay. to that? I think, not to turn the role play back onto you, yeah. but I would actually ask the guy a few questions. Yeah. Um, so what I would actually, so there's two ways of doing it. I, I, would, I would actually say, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, why do you think that? Like, how did you come to believe that mm. about these workers? Um, you know, do you know them? Um, who, who told you? Like, where, where did that actually, where did that idea actually uh, come from? Um, and then, because clearly there's probably racial undertones, could be religious undertones. So the reason he's saying that is because there's hurt. Um, because the, uh, the other likelihood is if he's a grab driver or a taxi driver, uh, it's likely that he's working quite hard mm. for not much money. And particularly yeah. because of COVID, he's had a rough six months. Yeah. Right. Their demand has been down 20 or 30% to, to 20 or 30%, like mm. 70, 70% down. Um, so understanding that he's doing it tough um, and then maybe actually just asking some questions to just draw out, you know, it must have been a really tough few months for you. How has that been? You know, have you been working hard? You know, how's that been for you? Uh, are you getting the help that you need? Um, and then, I mean, not to, not to pivot away from the issue, yeah. um, the fact that he said something untrue, but that might actually get you into a better stream of engaging with him as an individual, mm. um, around which you can then bring it back and kind of say, yeah, look, um, the reason I'm actually going uh, is, is to help these people because um, they're actually not trying to give it to each other because uh, they've actually been there before or we've been working with them. Mm. Um, they're actually terrified. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the last time I went, I saw that the conditions in which they were living were like really horrible. Um, and I'm a Christian. And so I actually believe this about the reason for justice um, or the Imago Day. And so um, that's why I'm actually, my friends and I are actually helping out. So you're not actually debating with the guy. Yeah. Uh, you're not counterpunching on his point because he's entitled to his view and yeah. you're in his car, you know, <laughs> he's entitled to share his view. Um, but I think, you know, acknowledging where he is at, why he's saying that yeah. and then kind of softly bringing it back and then still going on to share. Look, I, I, I probably don't really agree with that because I've seen mm. them and they're really struggling and they're just good people. They're actually just like you. They're actually just working really hard to help their families. Yeah. Have you got kids? You know, this one migrant worker I met has got two kids just like you. Mm. Um, you know, I'm sure you guys have lots and lots in common. Yeah. Uh, you still get 30% of your income. They're actually getting nothing right now. Mm. Um, so just to try and kind of softly equalize 
the perception of the other. So he's obviously demonised the other. Yeah. And so our role, I think, in that situation is to try and equalise. But tell me what your friend said. I'm sure it was much more, <laughs> much more amusing. No, no, no. And possibly but, um, more effective than I, my, my idea. And I love that. Like, I just love how you went about it. And I guess, it, can I ask you, would that just take practice? Because immediately when I heard that, like, my back got up. Oh, like, totally. Yeah, I was just like, oh my gosh, how can you say that? I know. Me too. Me okay. too. Okay. Yeah, me too. But then do you find that, how did you cultivate that, you know, that ability not to suddenly get shocked and then get on the defensive? Yeah. So what, I, I mean, mean, how do you, how and do, you I, do that? I used to think that this is just because I, I speak for AZIM. But the more I look in scripture, this is a universal mandate, right, that we have mm. in pretty much every interaction that we're in. Um, we're called to treat these people as if they're bearing God's image, right? Yeah. So we're taught, on some level, in terms of interaction, we're taught to treat them like we're treating, like we would treat Jesus in that car, mm. right? Uh, so that is there for all of us. And then we are also taught that, you know, we need to pour out the love of Jesus onto these people and understand where they're coming from. And we're also taught and mandated in scripture to sh do what we can to find an opportunity to share Jesus. Yeah. And in a, in a grab car or a taxi or a hairdresser, it's perfect because it's like diffusing a bomb. You yeah. don't have much time, right? <laughs> and so you've got to be on your game. Like the grace has to, you have to lead with grace. Yeah. You know, when it's a friend, you can get into an argument and the friendship's going to go for 50 years. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, can, you can make a, you know, and you forgive them and they forgive you whether they're Christian or not. There's a lot more affection there. But yeah. When you're with a, a grabby or a cabbie, um, it is messy. So I think, I think practice is part of it. Yeah. But I think more just that heart posture and just asking mm. the Holy Spirit constantly, just make me an instrument for you. Just give me the grace in that moment because I really just wanted to punch that guy yeah. in that moment or call him out as a racist or whatever, yeah. right? which in the world are completely rational responses, right? Because yeah. um, the world gets often the standard for justice right, right? that that is a racist response mm. or whatever. But it's the means to justice that they don't understand. Yeah. And if they don't have means by the power of the Holy Spirit like we have, I don't know how you would do that. I wouldn't have an answer for that question mm. uh, if not for the person of Jesus Christ in my life. Yeah. Because in that moment, all my instincts are doing exactly what <laughs> yours are doing, like any warm-blooded, half-brained person would do. Right? Yeah. Well, that's stupid and probably racist yeah. and probably unfair on many levels. Yeah. And you have no idea how badly these people are living right now. Yeah. But putting that all out there, like vomiting all of that out, <laughs> it, it might even win you the argument, but everything else has kind of been sucked mm. like nothing. All that you've left him with is a memory of probably an arrogant and self-righteous Christian. One of the biggest PR problems we've got <laughs> as a kingdom. Sorry, right? I love that, the biggest PR problem. Yeah, so why are we going to exacerbate that? Yeah, um, okay, no, so that yeah. was really, really great because I thought, yeah. So what happened with my friend was that I think I, I, I don't know what her response was, but mm. it was kind of like, oh, no, like, you know, that's not the case. This is what's going through, right? right? Which is and fine. Then, if you do that graciously, that's But then that's fine. I think they ended up not talking okay. for the whole journey. Okay. Because they were kind of like, they were shut off right. from each other. Right. But unfortunately, this Grab driver lives around the corner from my friend. and So the, she gets him a lot. Every day. <laughs> I love it. Every morning I love she it. realized when she gets a grab, it's the same guy. And she was on a mission wow. to kind of mend that and, and kind of like, That's you know, great. I'm going to like. That's great. So it's not like diffusing a bomb at all. This could be a. Yeah. But I just thought, I mean, the irony of it as well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know. <laughs> well, God often does that. He often is like, look, that probably really wasn't the way that, you know, you could have dealt with it. I'm just going to give you not just one more shot, 50 more shots at this. Oh, man. But no, yeah, I think, um, thank you for that. Because I think, yeah, you know how it's like, unless you've 
really uh, I think meditating on it and just coming from that position of just asking God you know use me but not I think a lot of Christians like I don't know like even me sometimes you know it's like immediately it's like black white that's wrong and yeah. then you, yeah, yeah. you get fired up about something but then seeing it from the other person's view where you know what's happening in their life that yeah like what's, they're making, responding. You say, what's making you say that yeah like you're clearly upset yeah mm. and, and that's love in a way that you would take time to want to know them right and hear what they're going through. Correct. Because yeah. the problem is at its, at its heart, the principle is quite simple. The reason that is such an infuriating statement is that he is failing to recognise that they are image bearers of God, mm. these migrant workers. Yes. The only way to counter that is to recognise this guy as an image bearer of God. The alternative yeah. is to make the same mistake he's making. Yes. And then we're all screwed. Yeah. Right? Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have four minutes left. And okay. still, oh man. Can you explain? Okay. Oh, some of these are going to be too long, I think. What I'm going to okay. do is actually give you the last four minutes just to share anything like, you know, from this talk or anything else that you'd like to encourage people who are listening um, in terms of going forward in this very, very complex world and in social justice. How do we represent Christ and really, you know, live, you know, what would Jesus do daily in yes. terms of this? Um, and whether it's as an individual or as a church as well. Sure. Um, look, thanks for the opportunity and, and thanks again for, for having me. It's been a, it's been a real privilege and, and for the uh, impromptu role play as well. <laughs> thanks for that. I wasn't briefed on that, by the way. Um, just, just got thrown into the, into the grab car. Look, one of my, one of my mentors today is a, one of our speaking team members and a, an amazing speaker and thinker. His name is Oz Guinness. Um, and he's, he's written some fantastic books on the interaction between the message of Jesus and the messed upness of the world. So the gospel in the public square, the gospel in a secular age, the gospel in an age of skepticism. And my friend and colleague Jordan is going to be speaking, I think, tomorrow mm, on, yes. on some of those dynamics. Yeah. One of Oz's books is a book called Impossible People. And he's talking about the fact that we Christians are called to be impossible people, like people that just don't make sense to the world. We can step into a grab and someone can say things, something that's so categorically racist and uninformed. And we can just pour out love and truth and strategy and Holy Spirit leading all at the same time on this person. Yeah. Right? That's what we are called to do. Yeah. And one adjective that Oz uses, it's a very old, old English word. Um, it's unclubbable. Unclubbable. And I hadn't heard it until I read this, yeah. read his book. And I, I talked to him about it once. And, and then I looked up the word and did some research on it. And it's basically... We have to be the kinds of people that people cannot pigeonhole. We can't be put in a club. That's what it means. Oh, I was thinking club. That's what I thought. <laughs> I was like, I'd love to be unclubbable. It basically means you're like invincible, yeah. right? Like the Hulk, right? Yeah. Right? Sorry. No, it's not. It's actually that you can't be placed into a club. Ah, oh, gotcha. And one of the biggest challenges that we have as followers of Jesus when I think, especially today, is that because debate is so polarized mm. and society is so divided, they want to monolithically pigeonhole Christians into this box. We have to show that that is not possible. And it's not our responsibility to make the whole kingdom of God get its PR right. All we have to do is yeah. worry about our own PR, yep. how we represent Jesus. Mm. And so if the world thinks uh, that we are narrow-minded and unthinking, we have to be intellectually credible. We have to do our homework. We have to understand principles of logic. Yeah. If the world thinks that we are dogmatic uh, and ungracious, then we have to work on our conversational capacity and how mm. we can you know, reason with people in a loving and a gracious way and see the questioner and the arguer behind the question and the argument. So, and this, it's not a complicated thing because Jesus tells us all of this. He's mm. the life to look at. Like, yeah. You just have to read through the Gospels and see that's the model. And you can't 
you can't club him. You can't put him left or right wing. You can't put him into any kind of kind of system of leadership theory or organizational behavior yeah. or anything like that. Mm. He's just literally from out of this world. Yeah. And we have the same access to that love. And so both intellectually, emotionally, mentally, relationally, mm. and transformationally, this gospel has everything that we need. Mm. Like we don't need to have it all ourselves. We've got this incredible supernatural love. Yeah. And there's this scene to finish with an Avengers reference. Um, <laughs> do it, do it. Do, can I do it? Yeah, do it. Um, there's a scene in, I, I think it's the first Thor movie, the one that's just called Thor, uh, where it's basically Thor's introduction to Earth. So the people of Earth are getting their first look at Thor uh, and Thor's getting his first look at the people of Earth. And of course, there's a huge battle at the end and he's, he's got his hammer, yeah. which channels all of his power. And so he's using that to fight off these bad guys. But the authorities on Earth are still confused about who's on whose side mm. and who he is and whatever. And so they all turn up in their tanks and in their you know, p police mobiles and stuff. And they've got this megaphone. And in classic kind of Western bureaucracy, they say to him, they're yelling out to him, it seems like you're using unregistered weapons technology. Please cease and desist. Yeah. Right? So they're saying unregistered weapons technology. They just don't understand because this power is literally from outside mm. the world. As followers of Jesus, we actually have access to unregistered love technology. Like the quality of love that we have access to is from out of this mm. world. It's going to confuse people. It's going to blow people away if we're using it correctly. And all we are called to do is draw closer to Jesus and draw closer to other people and it will just flow yeah. naturally. And the intellectual stuff and the logical coherence and all of that credibility, that'll just come alongside it. And God will give you know, each of us exactly what we need. So I guess my encouragement is to just know that you're working with technology from outside this world. Yeah. Um, and so you don't have to be phased by anything inside this world. Yeah. Uh, it's stormy out there. Yes. Um, but Jesus is in our boats with us. Mm. And so when it is a storm and he's with us, we can be assured of one of two things. He'll either calm the storm or the storm will rage as it is at the moment, culturally, but he will calm us within the storm yeah. and he'll give us what we need to encounter it, to tackle it, and to deal with it mm. in his name. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Wen. Thanks thank for having you, me. Thank you, Max. Oh my gosh, I don't know if, um, yeah, I'm just kind of blown away and I'm like trying to absorb everything, but I'm sure this, um, this webinar this morning, this conference will be available for you to revisit and really just listen to it again. And really, I think there's so much content out there um, but I think it's how do we then go forward and actually apply this on a day-to-day -day basis that it's mm. life transforming. So it's just not head knowledge, but it's really in the heart that then outflows into actions. That's it. Yeah.